Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Proverbs 1, verse 20, and the Bible's provided. It's on page 898, and it's also printed in the, uh, the handout. I'm going to read this first, and, and then we'll, we'll explain uh, something of an introduction for it. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would not have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed, and by their turning away, or excuse me, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let me pray with me. Father, as we hear, hear these words that are your words, spoken through the mouthpiece of your prophet Solomon, and also put in this woman wisdom's mouth, will you help our, 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 our internal being, our souls, to hear and take heed of these words? words, these warnings, and also strengthen us by the power that is at work in your word. For you say it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We cut to our heart today. Help us understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most common movie and television scenes and comedy is the awkward scene at a dinner table of parents trying to introduce a potential spouse to their son or daughter. Probably can think of a number of them. I won't even mention particular, particular scenes. Sometimes they even involve multiple potential suitors at the table with the, uh, the, the, the son or daughter. Always has some form of awkward expectation, hopeful 
anticipation of a match being made and, and uh, the people falling in love and, and, and leading to marriage. It's interesting when you look at this story of, or this, this presentation of wisdom that, that, that King Solomon pens, at least at this point, it seems pretty clear that he's the author, penning these words or speaking these words that are later recorded perhaps to one of his particular sons and maybe multiple sons. In some cases we see it's definitely multiple sons. The scene that I want you to see here is him introducing, Solomon introducing his son to this woman whom he calls wisdom. Because throughout the first nine chapters of the book, you see this woman wisdom come up a few times, and then eventually she's contrasted with another woman, folly, in chapter nine. And throughout the whole thing, Solomon is speaking in language that is essentially matchmaking language or, or, or suitor kind of language, saying, you need to know this woman more than that. You need to intimately know her. The language introducing even these women, these two women, both welcoming this young man into their home for a meal is language of intimacy. In the ancient world in particular, you didn't invite somebody into your home who you didn't want to have some close relationship with. That's why when Jesus eats with various sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, it's scandalous. Because it was a connecting yourself, not necessarily sexually, but a connecting yourself relationally, intimately with this person. And that is language that's that is, is without doubt what Solomon is communicating to his, his young son, that he wants this son to meet this woman, wisdom, and to take her seriously, and to choose her as opposed to woman folly, to avoid the various pitfalls of other seductive kind of enticements, even from prostitutes at times. Now, it's worth pausing here and saying that this book of Proverbs isn't just for young men, unmarried men. It also is for women. Because in almost every case in this book, you can flip the genders around and give the same kinds of warnings and advice, commendations and corrections to women who are perhaps are tempted to be um, seduced by certain men, attracted to certain men. For the man wisdom or the man folly is just as prevalent in the ancient world as it is in our world. The choices don't stop there. It's a book that's relevant for both men and women. It also extends to those who are married or those who are older and not married. Last week we read that, that the, the, the writings of these Proverbs are not only helpful for the young and the simple, we'll look at that more today, but also to the ones who are already considered wise. To hear them again over and over and recognize their wisdom and hear in their voice even correction, even to the end of day. None of us is perfect even to the end of our day. But maybe more 
eye-opening or more relevant to many of us who consider ourselves wise, who are older, is the warning not to be wise in our own eyes. To constantly be looking outside of ourselves, in particular to the wisdom that God has offered to us in his word as the, the foundation, the benchmark so that we are constantly seeking him and wanting to know his word and being challenged to not be complacent in our own understanding, wise in our own eyes. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He warns them not to be unequally yoked with another. Many of us, if you've been around the church, are very familiar with this passage, especially as it pertains to marriage, because that's oftentimes the place where we hear it applied most specifically. But it actually speaks not particularly of marriage. It doesn't mention marriage uh, in that particular passage. And the application of that is, is even broader than marriage. For the concept of uniting ourselves with another... Marriage is the most intimate of those unions, but it can also happen in our business practices. It can happen in our partnerships to pursue certain community uh, improvements. It can happen simply in our deepest, closest relationships that are not marriage or not romantic. It's not a call to avoid friendships or even partnerships outside of Christian faith or even with those that you disagree with in in some areas if you can co-labor and partner with unity in other areas. The warning, the warning is that when we unite ourselves with another, the language of a yoke, two oxen being yoked together, having to work together, when we unite ourselves with another person or with other people, and our mission isn't aligned, and our purpose isn't the same, we'll be like oxen trying to pull in different directions. And not only is the plow holding us back behind us, we're actually fighting against one another. That's why it's so important that Christians be careful when they are courting another person or or, or considering marrying uh, somebody that they know they aren't going to agree on everything. None of us agrees on everything. But that in the core, the heart of our mission in life, our purpose in life, in what we work toward and what we try to pursue in our communities, in particular in raising children, but even building up the relationship and seeking after our relationship with Christ and supporting one another in that, that we consider whether we are going to be pulling one another away from Christ, one another, work on that mission. Now, I can't mention that passage and that reference without saying one other warning that Paul, or correction that Paul offers us, and that is that many of us find ourselves in places where we are yoked to other people who have different missions, different purposes in life, different goals, Again, whether it's in business or in some type of partnership, community partnership, but in particular in marriage, Paul gives the helpful counsel that if you find yourself married to somebody who is not a believer, 
not a follower of Christ, somebody who is not pursuing the same mission in that area, and oftentimes there are many other missions that are out of alignment as a result of that. He says you're going to be tempted to want to leave the marriage, to find somebody that you can be united with more more closely and, and have a beautiful partnership. And he says what God has brought together in that marriage union, so long as the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to divorce, you should not divorce either. But you should pray for the salvation of the other. You should partner with them in areas that you can partner with. You should pursue that person and hope for their salvation and for that unity because you have been put in that place for that purpose. Remember the story of Esther who becomes a queen. The famous verse, she finds herself made. Her purpose is for such a time as this, as this that she would be able to turn a king's heart toward the living God. A pagan king's heart toward the living God. Now with that, and the call for this young man to be united with this woman wisdom, not in holy matrimony. It is a symbolic, it is a representative, a typological kind of woman here. It's not a particular woman. This woman wisdom has ties in and helps us understand something of who God is, for God is wisdom, and even who something of who Christ, who is God, is, because Christ is associated closely with the wisdom of God. What is wisdom is an important question we have to start with in the study of Proverbs. What is wisdom and many people understand that it is more than simply knowledge or insight wisdom is knowledge applied knowledge put into practice when you see a particular situation you know how to respond to that situation by using the knowledge you have and understanding the intricacies the nuances of that situation and as we go through this book we're going to see more and more that Proverbs seem oftentimes to be contradictory because they may be one or two simple lines. They can't explore or expound on the difficulties or the, the complexities of situations, and they seem at odds with one another. They sometimes are even exact opposite statements, and yet with wisdom you know how to apply them in particular situations. There's a difference between that and situational ethics, which says that there are many different answers to the same problem. And we'll get into that as we study more along the way. But wisdom is knowledge applied. But there's another helpful understanding of what this word, hakma um, or hakam, the wisdom of the Hebrew understanding, it is for the purpose of building things, of designing things. The word is oftentimes used to describe the work of artisans in ancient Israel when they were doing work on the temple or building things for the worship of God. They were using their wisdom to make things. And so it's not just being able to give sage advice like some person sitting in a cave who you go to to find uh, this hidden meaning in life. But wisdom is active. Wisdom is in the streets, in the markets. 
at the entrance to the city gates in modern day language, this is verse 20 and 21, in modern day language, these are in the places of the office, in the school, in the athletic field, and the gym, and the community, walking in the neighborhoods, in the homes on your block, in the social gathering places. They're the places where people are doing things, in the artist studios. Wisdom isn't some type of Gnostic endeavor that is hidden, secret society kind of thing. But wisdom is in the public and available to all. And so when wisdom uses this stark language, verse 24 and following down to verse uh, 31, it says when, when, when calamity comes, when trouble strikes, Sounds almost harsh. I'm not going to listen. You had your chance. There are a couple things going on there. One is a recognition that this wisdom is not something that people didn't have access to. It was hidden from them. So many people ask the question, probably the most common question I get as a pastor is, what about the people who never have a chance to hear about Jesus? What happens to them at the end of their life? And it's an interesting question when you're talking about somebody who is in a closed country who has very little access to the Bible, but it's a very revealing question when it's asked in a context like the United States where there are very few still even today who have not heard a simple presentation of the gospel. You see, wisdom is available to many people. Salvation is available to many people. But here, here are the responses that we tend to come back to, with to the call of wisdom. The first one is the simple, verse 22. And I want to encourage you to try to find yourself in each of these things, at least to some degree, so that you don't come away thinking of yourself as wise in your own eyes and miss the call of the gospel and miss the call of wisdom here today. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? Derek Kidner is a wonderful commentator who is known for pithy, descriptives, uh, descriptions of, of, of important words and concepts. Let me just read how he describes the simple person. A person in such a state will not go far before he meets a temptress. temptress. Or as in verse 110 that we looked at last week, tempters. Remember the the robbers who are trying to tempt the young man into their, their scheme to, to kill and to plunder. I skipped over one thing here. Let me just read this. A person in such a state, and Kidner presses in on us, turns the mirror toward us and says, the reader's not encouraged to think of himself beyond such folly. I'll just pause there for a second. The reader is not encouraged to think of himself beyond such folly will not go far before he meets a temptress or tempters who know what they want and what he half wants. 
the tempters know what they want and what the person, the son, each of us half wants. Isn't that an accurate description of simple thinking? We kind of want it. We know we shouldn't, but we kind of want it. In short, the simple and his elder brother, the fool, is no half-wit. He's a person whose instability could be rectified, but who prefers not to accept discipline in the school of wisdom. Whose instability could be rectified, but who prefers not to accept discipline in the school of wisdom. What are your half wants? Don't think of the simple as the half wit, but the simple as the person who's filled with half wants. Is it material possessions? Is it notoriety? Is it incredible intelligence, understanding? Is it some type of lustful desire? Is it something just more satisfying? One pastor talks about the lure of gossip in this and the temptation to talk about others to make ourselves feel better, these half-wants that we're willing to, to consider that we, we are, are walking dangerously close to that can be rectified, but that we choose to sit back and not actively engage to re remedy, to seek after wisdom when they could be rectified. Because we don't like the idea of discipline and correction a father or mother telling us don't do those things because we really want to do those things. Or God himself bringing what's oftentimes gentle discipline, but some of the time harsher discipline and harsher words, words of warning like these words of this woman. It says it's not only simple, it's foolish to presume upon the love of God to assume that he's just going to be there to get you out of the difficult situation when it arises, but ignore the relationship any other time. I mean, we go about our life in many ways in this way, using other people to get what we need or what we think we want, or in the other way around, what we want, what we think we need. Again, in our workplaces, in our relationships, but then when we really need them, it's like the boy who cried wolf. And they say, is this really important this time? The warning of wisdom is stark. The voice of wisdom is not always gentle. The voice of wisdom cries out in the streets. I don't think there's any reason to read this as somebody who's obnoxious. But nor is there any reason to read this as somebody who's drowned out by the cacophony of noises on the street. Wisdom speaks with authority and clarity. Wisdom calls to us. And the only way it's drowned out in our life is when we let the cares and concerns, 
the worries around us crowd out her voice. Jesus speaks clarity in this when he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I am the good shepherd. The sheep recognize my voice. When we attune our ears or tune our ears to hear Christ's voice or wisdom's voice, we recognize it even when there are hundreds of other voices drowning it out in the street. And we go to it and respond to it. And we find ourselves in the places of being simple where we need to simply engage and go to God's word more specifically. Go to his word to let it convict our hearts. Are we neglecting the ordinary means of his grace? And that is he's given us teachers and preachers to communicate the word of God. He's given us his word written and recorded faithfully, diligently throughout history that is here. Do we neglect reading that on a regular basis? Do we fail to see the importance of the gathering of the, the, the saints for worship and in homes that we would encourage one another and correct and challenge one another as we looked at, as brothers and sisters do, and uh, we looked at the book of Colossians recently and heard Paul challenging their hearers to speak those words of truth. We speak wisdom to one another when we're speaking his word. For if we find ourselves in the place of the simple too long, we slip into something that's a little bit different, and that is the seat of the, or the place of the fool. And again, Kidner, let me read some of his description of what a fool is. It seems to mean, at first glance, one who is dull and obstinate. But it must always be remembered that the book This book, Proverbs, has in mind a man's chosen outlook rather than his mental equipment. Isn't that interesting? Fool, we tend to think of just as somebody who's dull, not able to learn. But what Kidner challenges us helpfully in understanding the, uh, the intricacies of the Hebrew text is that it's more to do with a person's outlook, chosen outlook, as opposed to his mental faculties or mental equipment. We are shown the Kassil, fool, as he is first in himself and second in society. He gives some examples of this. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. That's Proverbs 17, 24. Proverbs 15, 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Some other examples I could give you, but the most striking ones in Proverbs 26, 11, the fool actually likes his folly. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The fool has chosen his course. He likes being there. The warning to the fool is that he hates knowledge. 
third one is the scoffer, again in verse 22. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? Kidner and others point out that both the fool and the simple are treated oftentimes with compassion and grace, able to change their outlook, able to learn and grow and change. But the scoffer is warned with more clarity. The scoffer is warned even to be ignored Avoided by the faithful follower of wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 7 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Kidner says, The scoffers is one group that God actually does ignore. And when we come to that place of scoffing at God, actively denying Him and rebuking Him and rejecting Him in culture, audibly to others, leading others astray, God turns His face on those people and rejects them. What is the one unpardonable sin that's mentioned in the New Testament? It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It says it is to attribute to God something that is not accurately attributed to God. It is to speak lies about God. And even that is not unpardonable in the long run if we turn back to God. But in the short term, God rejects that person and the warning of wisdom is helpful and the warnings throughout Scripture are helpful that don't, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden yourself as the Israelites did in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that. Don't presume upon God's goodness lest you find yourself in a position of need and true danger and you not be able to find God. Now one of the questions that I've wrestled with often as I've been studying this book over the last month or so in particular is the question of where is God's compassion in this book? Where is his mercy? Do we hear the gospel message, the salvation for sinners and the forgiveness and the application of God's righteousness to us and the taking of our sin upon him? Because oftentimes it seems cold and even impersonal. This woman wisdom seems to speak cold, hard truth without any seasoning of grace. Oftentimes, the end is pointed to, verse 32, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. (laughs) Over and over again in these speeches, there are, by some counts, roughly nine speeches. One person has as many as 16 or 17 speeches that are begun, introduced by the words, my son, or wisdom cries aloud in the street, or my sons, if you hear this, and they usually end with some kind of, of, of end to the tale. If you hear my voice, good things will happen in the end. If you ignore my voice or the words of woman wisdom, this is what will befall you. The simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, on the one hand, 
We can look forward to the promise of eternity with God, in God's presence, the promise of salvation that assures us that God is going to raise our bodies up and saves our souls from the time we die and we never see decay or destruction or or, or a time apart from God. If we are secure in Christ, we will dwell secure with him for eternity. And that is a beautiful, wonderful hope and help in time of need. It is a beautiful promise, but there is also a present day application to these words that the Proverbs offer to us, particularly in verse 33. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. And in these words is not only the grace and the promise of eternal salvation, but a hope that informs this present life and moves us to a place of joy and of security and of hope even when calamity strikes even when our life utterly falls apart and we can say today we dwell secure in God's presence and this This may be the most profound thing that I've understood better in my study of Proverbs so far. Because I think like many of you, you come to the, I I came to the book of Proverbs wanting something more, wanting to go deeper. And it oftentimes seems like simple advice for children. and, And we know this stuff. But the most profound learning that I've understood found in the book of Proverbs from my study so far is its interconnectedness to the other wisdom books of the Bible. In particular, Ecclesiastes and Job and the Song of Solomon. Psalms are oftentimes linked in with the wisdom and even Psalms have the same type of wisdom kind of questioning of these types of principles that are oftentimes confused with promises of God. Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper? Right? These questions, why do the wicked prosper? It seems like the Proverbs don't play out rightly. Well, we've already looked at one connection, and that is with the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. You see, Solomon, for all of his problems later in life, we can't, we can't uh, uh, debunk or, 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 or think of Solomon's writings as less than the Word of God because he strays from them and goes someplace else later in life by the way, but the Song of Solomon is, is about intimate relationships and a, a joining together of, of others. And so the Song of Solomon helps us to read uh, Proverbs to understand the significance of this intimate relationship, the finding of a good wife, the not pursuing other women, particularly other people's wives and the, the dangers of that, that are connected to that and the delighting in your own wife, the wife of of your youth. But there are other connections with these wisdom books. Ecclesiastes gets into these more complex questions. Why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And maybe more specifically, profoundly than any of the other books is the book of Job, not written by Solomon but an ancient work that explores this particular question, where is God when calamity strikes the righteous? 
the opening of Job, says there was no one righteous like this man. It goes on to describe all the things he did right. And yet Job loses everything. Not only his material wealth and his profession, but his whole family and his wife. Even his friends leave him or offer bad advice at best. And through that, God reveals something more to Job about himself. But most significantly, God reveals something to us about who he is and about his purposes in life. And that is his presence in the time of trouble. When it feels like he's abandoned us because everybody else abandons us, he communicates to us that he is with us. In reading these wisdom books side by side, we see that this principle is very different than God's promises. For the principles laid out in Proverbs are more probabilities. They're more a scientific outlook. If you do these things, good things will oftentimes happen. But there are a lot of people who do awful things and good things happen to them. And God is not absent in those places. Rather, he is with us, walking through us in the effects of this fallen world that we live in. Using these fallen things and these broken things and even death itself. The presence of death itself to communicate to us that there is a salvation that is far greater than anything that we could have hoped or imagined. That if we are in Christ, that if we have heard the gospel message that he has died on the cross in order to pay the penalty of our sins and given us his righteousness, that we are living in that with this important task of communicating that message to the world around us that is hurting and asking these same questions. For the wisdom of God appears as if it's foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing. Because it seems to be short-sighted. It seems to be self-sacrificial. It seems to not suck the marrow out of life. But the wisdom of God, as we've been talking about over the last two weeks, takes this long view. It says that there's something more important than my happiness in this life. And that is in stark contrast to the wisdom of the world around us, particularly today, that idolizes the individual happiness, my own happiness, at the expense of so many others. The wisdom of God says the salvation, the message of salvation and salvation goes to, to all nations, to all peoples, rich and poor, educated and lesser educated, older and younger. This was foolishness in the time of Solomon, foolishness in the time of the apostles, foolishness even in our day where education is the mark of true accomplishment in life. Where money 
makes people feel like they're secure when it is a security that can be swept away in an instant. Where life itself can end in a moment. We have no idea when the Lord will come and take our lives. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart or presume that you have later another time to respond and act. Tomorrow may not come for you in this world. The wisdom of this life says, hear this gospel and believe. For you're no fool to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. God's Spirit speaks through these words of wisdom. I don't know if you caught it. But in verse 23, there's a powerful allusion that's picked up in other parts of the scripture. It says, behold, if you turn at my reproof, a turning, a converting, a confessing of your sin and turning with belief toward God to faithfully fulfill all of his promises. If you turn at my reproof, there's a clear call to turn. There is a promise. And by the way, I walked over this. I don't want to say the, the promise of verse 33 is sure and steadfast that we will dwell secure. We just have to understand that promise right. But the, there's a promise in verse 23 here too. This is the last thing. We'll close with this, this promise. Did you hear what he said? He said, I will pour out my spirit to you and I will make my words known to you. Does that ring a bell? <clears throat> The prophet Ezekiel speaking to a, a hardened people, a people who were under God's judgment, who, who, who were, were in, experiencing immense hardship because of their own choices and, and they're pursuing their intimate relationships with other gods. And God speaks words of comfort and promise to them. He says, I'll not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Wisdom is speaking in language that identifies her with God himself, pouring out her spirit. And the prophet Joel, also speaking in a time of difficulty, says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I will Pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now that language hundreds of years prior to Jesus' coming is used again in the book of Acts. After Jesus has been crucified, died, buried, risen from the dead showed himself to many people, hundreds of people, and then ascended into heaven bodily, sits at the right hand of God the Father. He promised, I will give you my spirit. And at the occasion of Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, there is this beautiful giving of the spirit of God that comes out, Acts 2, 17 and 18, saying, 
quoting back to Joel. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And Luke, who writes the book of Acts, says, that is what Jesus was doing through his Holy Spirit in the giving of God's Spirit at the occasion of Pentecost. When we turn to God and heed the voice of wisdom, God pours out his Spirit on us. And he explains that that Spirit isn't just some kind of liveliness inside of us that has some type of drug-like effect. But it's also a mark on our internal being, an indelible mark, a mark that cannot be removed, a security that identifies you as a follower of Christ, as God's chosen possession. There is nothing that can take that mark away. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that anybody else can do for God has put that mark as a security in your life, poured out his spirit in you, not just to give you some kind of fanciful ability to speak in other language or maybe even in some unintelligible language, but he's poured out his spirit to you and it gives you a certain power, but it gives you more than the power. It gives you a security that whoever listens to that voice of wisdom and heeds that call will dwell secure. You will be at ease. You will have no reason to dread the coming of disaster. So when rumors of earthquake abound, when scares of natural disasters or even massive plagues and death or even loss of job or loss of someone you love comes near. You have this spirit living in you. It's not just any spirit, it's God's spirit that has been given to you as this source of security. That's what wisdom gives to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have poured out your spirit to us. That you have not left us alone. That you call to us with your voice. And that as your sheep, we would recognize your voice. We confess to you that sometimes your voice is drowned out. And we pray that you would help us to study your words. To know them, to speak them to one another. That we would recognize them as the words of wisdom calling out to us. And we would heed these ancient words of wisdom in this book and not see them as simplistic, but to understand that they point us to the way of life, life everlasting. Will you help us to hide them in our hearts and to understand them and guard our hearts against fears and place our fear our fear in you, the one who is truly to be feared, 
but not in a terrifying way for those of us who are in you, who know you, but as ones who are protected by your power. We pray for some who are hearing the gospel for the first time or maybe even hearing it with clarity for the first time or maybe the spirit for the first time is opening their eyes and their hearts to hear this message of salvation. We pray that you would not allow them to wait another day, but that they would seize hold and take hold of this salvation and believe. Not wait, not deceive themselves that they've got another day, but hear your voice and believe. And Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us this week by these your words, and that we would love them and cherish them and hide them in our heart. We pray in your name. Amen.